As the days shorten with the cool, wet weather of autumn, life begins to turn inward again, the fields lying fallow and bare. Flowers wither, leaves decay, and all life seems to return to the earth. It's in this period of fading life that strange and beautiful forms begin to arise from the undergrowth in the temperate regions all over Europe. In woodlands, fields, gardens and along roadsides, colourful fungi and mushrooms of all shapes and sizes quietly spring forth and flourish as if from nowhere, while all else appears in a state of decline. They bear names as odd as their appearance. Amethyst deceivers, lilac bonnets, blushers, scarlet wax caps, destroying angels, funeral bells, witches' hats, fly agarics, and liberty caps. A delicate and mysterious panoply playing itself out in the undergrowth beneath our feet, and one which vanishes as quickly as it appears. The kingdom of fungi is among the least understood of life on the earth. In many parts of Europe, Ireland included, fungi have long been looked on with a culture of suspicion and scepticism, being popularly associated with the devil, the puka or the fairy host and viewed as almost universally poisonous and generally to be avoided. This is an attitude that could do with some revision as fungi are essential to the promotion of a healthy environment and potentially offer profoundly positive impacts for human life and health. Fungi are nature's great recyclers and they beautifully represent the interconnected cycles of decay, regeneration and rebirth that underpin our world. The mushroom you see by the roadside or that you see in the meadow or woodland is no standalone individual but is the fruiting body of a much larger organism, the mycelium, a root-like network of thin filaments called hyphae which combine to form an enormous subterranean network covering vast distances and connecting the roots of various plants and trees in an interconnected and symbiotic system. Indeed, the word symbiosis itself was first coined in 1876 by German mycologist Albert Bernhard Frank to describe the living arrangement favoured by lichen, a composite organism of a fungal and algal nature, the two of which live alongside one another as one, eating rocks together and doing things that lichen does. So, next time you hear the word symbiosis, remember fungi. Fungal mycelial networks are constantly distributing and recycling nutrients, creating the soil in which plants and animals thrive and interconnecting the roots of trees and plants in a complex living network. Many species of fungi contain medicinal properties. We're all aware of the importance of penicillin and antibiotics, for example. Fungi can treat infections, can boost immunity and can stimulate brain neurogenesis. Indeed, psychedelic psilocybin-containing mushrooms are currently offering breakthroughs in the world of psychiatry by assisting those suffering with severe or apparently treatment-resistant forms of depression. There's a renaissance of psilocybin-based clinical trials taking place in countries around the world at the moment, including Ireland. And concerning psilocybin-containing mushrooms, psychiatrist Stanislav Graf has stated that, quote, psychedelics will be for psychiatry what the microscope is for biology or the telescope is for astronomy. So if our mycelial underlords offer such benefits to human health and to the earth in general, why then do we tend to treat them with such disregard? And uh, what does this have to do with folklore? Well, this episode of Blurini is going to commence with an overview of fungal lore of the ancient world before moving to consider Irish and broader European traditions and beliefs regarding mushrooms. We'll examine the evidence, or lack thereof, for ancient mushroom cults in Ireland before uh, considering the connections linking a Mazatec shaman living in the mountains of southern Mexico, the Vice President of Public Relations for J.P. Morgan Bank, the Irish Folklore Commission Archivist Sean O'Sullivan, and the CIA. I'll give you a clue. Uh, the answer is mushrooms. So, a very warm welcome to episode 32 of Blurini. 
Through the fields we go now, heads bowed for the next hour in search of the mushroom in folk tradition. Our foraging might usefully commence with a brief survey of the evidence for mushroom use in prehistoric times. Evidence in this regard is naturally quite scant, but the discovery of rock art from several regions has been interpreted by some scholars as suggesting the possible ritual use of mushrooms in archaic times. Perhaps the most ancient example of this sort of art has been found just beyond Europe's shores in Algeria, a North African country with a Saharan interior which is bordered by the Mediterranean Sea to its north. In a cave in Tassili in South Algeria, a painted mural from around 7000 BC was discovered which portrays a bee-headed humanoid figure from whose body spring forth what appear to be innumerable mushrooms. Another mural from the area portrays mushroom figures or sort of fungoid men as they merrily run along. Crossing the Mediterranean Sea north of Algeria, we travel now to the hills outside Villar del Humo in Spain's Cuenca region, around 6000 to 4000 BC, where we find the Selva Pascuala mural. One of the two panels found at the Selva Pascuala rock shelter, which was discovered in 1918, depicts a bull alongside fungal pictographs, which some scholars have interpreted as the psychedelic mushroom psilocybe hispanica. What can be gleaned from these prehistoric murals and what do they tell us of ritual psychoactive mushroom use of our archaic ancestors? Well, not a lot, it must be said. It's extremely difficult to draw any firm conclusions from an examination of these materials and naturally enough we bring a lot of intellectual baggage to any interpretation of the images which we try to apply. Ambiguity, uncertainty and a multiplicity of potential interpretations are all that remain at this early stage. That being said, we can be certain that our ancestors were familiar with and used fungi for different purposes. The amadou mushroom, a spongy fungus bearing the appearance of a horse's hoof which could be found growing on the bark of coniferous trees and which has a long history of use as a tinder, was identified amidst the tools and equipment found with the remains of Otzi the Iceman, the 5,000 year old body of a man entombed in the ice of the Otzel Alps and who bears the enviable title of being Europe's oldest natural mummy. Aside from the tinder fungus and various other tools, Otzi also carried with him a birch polypore, a bracket fungus which grows in the bark of birch trees and which has anti-parasitic properties. Zooming ahead by several thousand years now and travelling to Greece, on the topic of medicinal fungi, there's an abundance of evidence in classical literature to suggest that the ancient Greeks and Romans were well acquainted with fungi, some of which they prized for the health benefits they provided. In the 1st century AD, Dioscorides, the Greek botanist and physician considered the father of pharmacology, compiled the Materia Medica, an enormously influential encyclopedia of herbal medicine, in which he hailed the use of the larch polypore, a fungus known in Latin as Larisiphemes officinalis or Fomatopsis officinalis, commonly known as agaricon. Agaricon was hailed by Dioscorides for its properties which are, as he quotes, styptic, that is to say, it stops bleeding, and efficacious against colic and sores, fractured limbs and bruises from falls. It is given in liver complaints, asthma, jaundice, dysentery, kidney diseases, cases of hysteria, and to those of a sallow complexion. Dioscorides further recommended agaricon for pains in the stomach, pains in the joints, as a purgative, and as an antidote for poisons, and modern research into agaricon has revealed it to have incredibly powerful antiviral and antimicrobial properties which are still not fully understood. 
Not all mushrooms, of course, are quite so beneficial to human health and well-being, and some garner altogether more sinister associations. As to the poisonous nature of some fungi, Nicander of Colophon, the Greek poet of the 2nd century BC, believed that the toxins present in certain mushrooms came from the breath of venomous serpents. He warned that if a venomous serpent be near, and the serpent breathe upon the mushrooms as they open, from their natural affinity with poisonous substances, they are readily disposed to imbibe such poison. This association with poisonous serpents appears to have persisted as late as the 16th century, a woodcut illustration appearing in an Italian translation of Dioscorides' Materia Medica from 1560 portrays a scene in which the serpents writhe about amidst some mushrooms growing beside rotting tree stumps. Sinister serpentine visions of this sort can also be seen in the evocative and darkly dreamlike works of the Dutch painter Otto Marcius van Schriek. A 17th century painter of the Dutch Golden Age, Van Schriek's works consist of nocturnal woodland scenes of flora and fauna, often featuring mushrooms and thistles around which serpents coil entwined and over which moths flutter. I've left a link to his art in the description for this episode, and uh, along with a lot of other links, and I suggest you go and take a look at his stuff if you're unfamiliar. As to the origins of mushrooms, a common belief among the ancient Greeks was that they were formed during lightning and thunderstorms. On this topic, the philosopher Theophrastus, a student of Aristotle's, writing around 300 BC, notes, With regards to these things, peculiar beliefs are held, for they say that mushrooms are produced during autumn rains, and by thunderstorms especially, which are the main reason of their growing. The philosopher and historian Plutarch, writing in his essays in the 1st century AD, devoted some thought to this belief, recalling a conversation around the dinner table where the apparent connections between thunder and mushrooms were pondered between friends. An excerpt of his account goes as follows. Now it is probable that when these thunder and lightning showers, with a great deal of warmth and spirit, descend forcibly into the caverns of the earth, these are rolled around and knobs and tumours are formed. For a mushroom is not like a plant, neither is it produced without rain, it hath no root, nor sprouts, it depends on nothing, but is a being by itself, having its substance of the earth, a little changed and altered. If this discourse seems frivolous, I assure you that such are most of the effects of thunder and lightning which we see, and upon that account men think them to be immediately directed by heaven, and not depending on natural causes. Quite extraordinarily, this popular belief, explanation for which eluded both Theophrastus and Plutarch, has been recorded not just in Greece, but in Rome, in Germany, India, and in modern Kashmir, in Persia, and in Asia's Pamir Mountains. Beyond the Indo-European world, it's been recorded among the Bedouin, the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Maori of New Zealand, who share a word meaning both mushroom and thunder. Aside from their uses as medicines, poisons, or the subject of after-dinner conversation, what of the ritual use of psychoactive mushrooms in European tradition? Well, it has been speculated by some scholars, and it should be noted vehemently denied by others, that at the core of the Eleusinian Mysteries, a yearly rite performed by initiates to the cult of Demeter and Persephone in ancient Greece, that there may have been a psychoactive vision-inducing potion called Kikion. At the climax of the ceremonies at Eleusis, initiates entered the Telestrion, a great hall of initiation where they partook of a potion known as Kikion and experienced profound visions. Those who were initiated into the mysteries were forbidden to ever speak of the events that took place in the Telestrion, and to this day they remain, well, a mystery. 
though several scholars have suggested that the Kikion brew contains psychoactive hallucinogens derived from either Amanita muscaria, psilocybin mushrooms, or ergot of rye. Ergot is a fungal parasite and mushroom known as Claviceps purpurea, which grows on barley, wheat, and other wild grasses and contains psychoactive compounds. In fact, it was by isolating compounds found in ergot that the Swiss chemist Dr. Albert Hoffman first synthesized lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD, in 1938. Leaving ancient Greece and travelling northwards to the great tundra of Siberia, the use of Amanita muscaria, the iconic red and white toadstool commonly known as fly agaric, among shamans there to achieve ecstatic states is well attested. In his 1951 book, Shamanism, Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy, the Romanian Mircea Eliad, one of the world's foremost interpreters of religious symbolism and myth, outlines the practices of the Siberian mushroom shamans thus. Summoned to a house, the shaman performs fumigations and dedicates a piece of cloth to Sanke, the celestial supreme being. After fasting all day, at nightfall, he takes a bath, eats three or seven mushrooms and goes to sleep. Some hours later, he suddenly wakes and, trembling all over, communicates what the spirits through their messenger have revealed to him. The shaman then relapses into deep sleep, and on the following day the specified sacrifices are offered. Time doesn't permit us to explore any of the aforementioned customs in any great detail, but having looked at some of the ancient uses for mushrooms in the ancient world, what can we say about the records for their use in Irish tradition? There are out there several books, articles and essays suggesting the presence of ancient mushroom cults in early Ireland. Of these I've read speculations linking descriptions of the hero Cúchulainn's warp spasm with the effects of Amanita muscaria, suggestions that the swirly spirals and rock art that adorn megalithic sites such as Newgrange and County Meath are indicative of psilocybin mushroom use among the ancients, and uh, I've waded through suggestions that reference to certain esoteric practices recorded among early Christian monks in Ireland are in fact veiled references to the use of mushrooms as intoxicants. The practice of imbus ferusni is often cited as an example in this regard, and while it does indeed bear some uh, passing resemblance to the practices of Siberian shamans, insofar as both customs revolve around the idea of insight and illumination through sleep, there is no recorded connection with any mushroom use. A quote and a description of imbus ferusni follows here. Imbus ferusni, manifestation that enlightens. It discovers what thing soever the poet likes, and which he desires to reveal. Thus then is that done. The poet chews a piece of the red flesh of a pig, or a dog, or a cat, and puts it then on a flagstone behind the door valve, and chants an incantation over it, and offers it to idle gods, and calls them to him, and leaves them not on the morrow, and then chants over his two palms, and calls again idle gods to him, that his sleep may not be disturbed. Then he puts his two palms on his two cheeks and sleeps. And men are watching him, that he may not turn over and that no one may disturb him. And then it is revealed to him that for which he was engaged till the end of three days and nights, or two or three for the time that he may judge himself to be at the offering. St. Patrick banished that, and the ten and lay the illumination of song, and declared that no one who shall do that shall belong to heaven or earth, for it is a denial of baptism. The preceding translation, it has been suggested, is in fact a veiled and cryptic reference to mushroom use in Irish tradition, a suggestion which, without wishing to cast aspersions, I find dubious at best, especially when considered in light of the broader sources. 
Christian monks from whom all of our early literature is received were recording essentially garbled practices which had lost all connections with their pagan past, and practices of this sort have come to mean, as T.F. O'Rahilly notes in his early Irish history and mythology, quote, little more than particular kinds of metrical composition. I would find the suggestion that these were active cults veiled in coded language to be a bit of a stretch, to put it mildly. Is it possible that psychoactive plant substances were employed in early Ireland? Certainly our records show that the Irish have been no strangers to intoxication historically, but a reading of the literature draws a blank in this regard, as far as mushrooms are concerned at least, and this is one, this blank would appear to be one which is enthusiastically filled in with uh, mushroomic speculations of all sorts from the 1970s on. When we look at the sources, military observers, medieval travellers, archaeological records, mythological texts, more recent ethnographic collections, newspaper accounts, court records from the 1700s on, none point to the ritual use of mushrooms or to their use as an intoxicant by the people in Ireland. Further, what recorded material we do have here concerning mushrooms suggests a sort of mycophobia or a generalised taboo against mushrooms on the part of the Irish. This ties in with findings regarding Germanic and Northern European peoples in general, unlike our cousins in Eastern Europe and Great Russia. So while it is possible that in prehistory there was some use of uh, psychoactive plant substances or that there were individual cases as such, but there is just no evidence for a cult in this regard. Concerning mushrooms as food, while there are ample references to corn, milk and milk products, meat, fish, vegetables, fruit and seaweeds in the early Irish diet, the mushroom is largely absent from the early literature. So what do we have as far as references to mushrooms in Irish tradition? Well, we have references to the medicinal use of mushrooms in the classic medieval Irish herbal of Taig O'Quinn, an Irish materia medica from around the 15th century, which follows the example of the Greek Dioscorides, who we mentioned at the outset of the podcast. In his herbal, O'Quinn outlines the uses for agaricus, a bracket fungus used to cure fevers, colic, and pains of all sorts. It could be used as a laxative, it could assist in strengthening the functions of the liver, spleen, and kidneys, could heal wounds and ulcers, and was even used in the treatment of, quote, hemorrhoids and all sorts of piles. Versatile indeed. William Camden, describing the Irish diet in the early 17th century, however, says that, quote, as for their meats, they feed willingly upon herbs and watercresses, especially upon mushrooms and shamroots. Mushrooms and shamroots, indeed, William. Mushrooms undoubtedly formed a peripheral part of the Irish diet, and accidental bee mushroomings, intoxications, and flat out poisonings have been recorded in newspaper articles and medical literature. An article published in the Freeman's Journal in Ireland on the 14th of September 1837 describes the unfortunate accidental death of a mother and her six children after they ate poisonous mushrooms picked near Ballinahinch in County Galway. The account reads, Six children poisoned. We have the painful duty of recording this week one of the most lamentable cases of accidental poisoning that ever came to our knowledge. Five children belonging to Robert Scott, Glastrumund, near Ballinahinch, and a foundling that had been reared in the family fell victim at once to the ignorance of their mother. The poor woman had collected a number of fairy stools, by some called paddock stones. The botanical name is, we believe, Agaricus oriades. We give all the names that the public may be on their guard. She had collected them in mistake for mushrooms, brought them home to the children, and the fatal consequence followed, which we have already related. 
The circumstance affords a warning to parents more forcible than any words we could employ to caution their children against eating plants which they know nothing about, and especially to guard them against those fairy stools which were not generally known to be poisonous. Terrible events of this sort, though rare, are not unheard of, and while mushrooms did form a peripheral part of the Irish diet, the general attitude towards them in Irish tradition seems to have been one of disdain, dislike, and distrust. In volume 1670 of the main collection at the archives of the National Folklore Collection, University College Dublin, is a curious ethnography gathered from around Ireland concerning mushrooms and tradition. I was always curious as to how this questionnaire material was compiled and why it came about, and, following a hunch, I searched through the uncatalogued correspondence of Irish Folklore Commission archivist Sean O'Sullivan. There, I was particularly excited to discover correspondence from Or Gordon Wasson lying in our collections. So, who is Or Gordon Wasson, and what has he to do with the Folklore Commission and its holdings? Wasson is somewhat of an unlikely figure to have taken an interest in mushrooms. Born in Montana in the USA, Wasson was the president of public relations for the bank J.P. Morgan & Co., he is also widely regarded, however, as the father of ethnomycology. His interest in the area began when he and his wife, the Russian Valentina Pavlovna Guerkin, were walking through the woods in the Catskills on their honeymoon in 1927. Of this, Wasson writes, We went sauntering down the path for a walk, hand in hand, happy as larks, both of us abounding in the joy of life. There was a clearing on the right, a mountain forest on our left, Suddenly, Tina threw down my hand and darted up into the forest. She had seen mushrooms, a host of mushrooms of many kinds that peopled the forest floor. She cried out in delight at their beauty. She addressed each kind with an affectionate Russian name. Such a display she had not seen since she left her family's dasha near Moscow almost a decade before. She knelt before those toadstools in poses of adoration, like the virgin hearkening to the angel at the Annunciation. She began gathering some of the fungi in her apron. I called, come back, come back to me. They're poisonous, putrid, they're toadstools, come back to me. She only laughed the more. Her merry laughter will ring forever in my ears. That evening she seasoned the soup with the fungi. She garnished the meat with other fungi. Yet others she threaded together and strung up to dry, for winter use, as she said. My discomfiture was complete. That night I ate nothing with mushrooms in it. Frantic and deeply hurt, I was led to wild ideas. I told her I would wake up a widower. She proved right, and I wrong. These dramatic circumstances made a lasting impression on us both. From that day on, we sought an explanation for this strange cultural cleavage separating us in a minor area of our lives. Our method was to gather all the information we could on the attitude toward wild mushrooms of the Indo-European and adjacent peoples. We tried to determine the kinds of mushrooms that each people knows, the uses to which these kinds are put, the vernacular names for them. We dug into the etymology of those names to arrive at the metaphors hidden in their roots. We looked for mushrooms in myths, legends, ballads, in the writers who drew their inspiration from folklore, in the cliches of daily conversation in slang and the telltale recesses of obscene vocabularies. We sought them in the pages of history, in art, in holy writ. We were not interested in what people learn about mushrooms from books, but what untutored country folk know from childhood, the folk legacy of the family circle. The Wasson's research revealed a pattern of marked mycophilia, that is, love of mushrooms, and mycophobia, its opposite, among the Indo-European peoples. 
The Great Russians and the Catalans, for example, are cultural mycophiles, while the ancient Greeks, Celts, Anglo-Saxons and Scandinavians were mycophobes. In the course of his research, Wasson contacted the Irish Folklore Commission in the hope of gleaning further information regarding mushroom traditions in this country. Before going any further, I'd like to send a special note of thanks to archivist Danielle Castronovo at the Economic Botany Herbarium of Oaks Ames, Harvard University. Danielle very kindly filled in the gaps on some of this correspondence from the Tina and Orr Gordon Wasson Ethnomycological Collection while I was carrying out the research for, for this edition of the podcast. So, cheers. Now, in March of 1961, James Hamilton Dlargy, the Honorary Director of the Irish Folklore Commission, responded to a query of Mr. Wasson's concerning mushrooms in Irish tradition. Dlargy offered to assist Wasson in his research, but expressed a certain scepticism regarding the mushroom in Ireland, writing, While I do not think we should be able to provide Mr. Wasson with much information, I can promise him that we shall do our best. The Commission did indeed do its best. Sean O'Sullivan, archivist at the Folklore Commission, on receiving Wasson's query, contacted seven full-time folklore collectors working in the field in different parts of Ireland. The responses they returned to head office were paginated, catalogued and bound in volume 1670 of the main manuscript collection and to date remain unpublished. Materials on this topic were collected by Michael J. Murphy, working in the English language in County Armagh, Sean Lohohig, collecting in Irish in County Donegal, Kieran Barraid, collecting in Irish in County Galway, Sean O'Cronin, collecting in Irish in County Cork, Michal McEnery, collecting in Irish in County Mayo, Jim Delaney, collecting in English in County Roscommon, and Sean O'Douda, collecting in English in County Kerry. Between them, they compiled 30 pages of handwritten material from local people concerning beliefs, practices and sayings regarding mushrooms in Irish tradition. From the outset, some of the collectors note the paucity of data available from their inquiries into this topic. Michael J. Murphy wrote that, quote, I hoped to be able to give the results of some detailed inquiry around Omid and South Armagh on your inquiry about mushrooms. So far, very little positive or exciting data has resulted. I don't think I expect any. I have no recollection at all myself of any folklore about them in our part of South Armagh. Michael J. does, however, relate some names used for mushrooms in tradition. While unable to cite any names for them known in Irish, he does reference a nickname used for them in his area, Pothook Stools, though he is unable to say as to why they were called Pothook Stools. The answer, in fact, lies in the corruption of the word used for toad by the Dutch, Frisians, Norwegians and Danes. That word is pad or paddock. And reference to it can be found in the opening scene of Macbeth, where the witches declare, Paddock calls anon, fair as foul and foul as fair, hover through the fog and filthy air. Pothook is paddock, is therefore toad, and pothook stool is toadstool. Other names given to puffball mushrooms in the area were blind man's buff. The reason given that when you'd step on them, the dust would puff into your eyes and blind you. Other charming names for mushrooms are accounted for in County Roscommon, and Jim Delaney relates how a farmer explained to him that, quote, There is a type of mushroom that is not edible, which informants say is shaped like a child's top, i.e. a spinning top, and it has a lot of brown dust inside in it. This is locally known as a sheep's fart. Whenever you see these out early, it will be a bad year for potatoes, poor quality and bad crop. Now, not all mushrooms betokened a poor harvest. Sean Glennon of Clare Galway explained to folklore collector Kieran Barraid that, quote, They used to say that there would be a great harvest on the year that mushrooms were plentiful. 
If the year was wet, there would be no mushrooms, but if May and June were dry, with rain coming at the end of June or start of July, they would be everywhere and you couldn't walk in the fields without stepping on them. Returning briefly to the topic of the aforementioned sheep's farts, listeners may remember from the episode on folk medicine the use of the dust from a fungus known as the bull's fart to stem bleeding. Listeners should also take note that the ill or infirm should never be exposed to actual sheep's or bull's farts, which would likely send all but those in the rudest of health immediately packing for Hades. Leaving sheep's, bulls and their farts now, the horse mushroom was also kept and used to stem bleeding, as Sean Glennon again explains, quoting, There was a mushroom called the horse mushroom, which grew very large. If you let them grow to full maturity, they would fill with dust, and the dust would blow in the wind when they'd open up. In the piece that remained, the skin inside, there was a cure on that for cuts. A piece of it was placed into a cut to stop the bleeding. It would be kept in a jug on the dresser for such an occasion, if a neighbour or anyone needed it. Other accounts collected in Donegal relate how farmers feared that some of the mushrooms growing in fields where, where livestock were grazing could be injurious to them. Seamus McAuliev from the Salisee in County Donegal related how, quote, some of the old people used to say, too, that some of these mushrooms that grew in the fields, that if there were sheep grazing in these fields, that if the sheep touched them, that there was some sort of dust in them, and if this dust got into the sheep's eyes, it would blind them for some time and give them some sort of ailment of the eyes. What other traditional names were there for mushrooms? Well, in Hiberno-English, they were often pronounced miseroons, in Irish commonly known as mishroon, which itself stems from the French mousseron, and fos einichia, meaning one night's growth. Another common Irish language name finds expression in a host of local variants in County Mayo, where bicon, buyacon, and buacon are all recorded. The term from which they stem, bacon, uh, the etymology of which is a little unclear, to me at least, is perhaps the most common term for mushroom in the Irish language. In Galway, newly grown mushrooms were called putzini, little pots, whereas those that had matured and were beginning to turn were referred to as clouster, a term used to describe an ungainly, unshapely sort of shambles of a person. The mischievous shape-shifting spirit, the puka, who I covered in our previous episode, an interview with sculptor Aidan Hart, is also referenced in relation to several mushrooms in Irish tradition. Cusapuca, meaning the puka's feet, was the name used for the stinkhorn mushroom. Uh, look that one up. Kaushapuka, meaning the puka's cheese or fairy cheese, was often used to describe bracket fungus and polypores of one sort or another. And Maricon puka, the puka's fingers, was also used as a name for mushrooms. The fairies often appear in connection with mushrooms, and of course, narratives concerning the leprechaun or lurhadon generally feature his appearance on or beneath a toadstool of one sort or another. I'm going to play a piece of audio from the archive here, which was collected in 1980, and in which the topic of fairy paths, that is, invisible roads used by the fairies, is being discussed. The topic of mushrooms crops up in the discussion, and one of the Farrell sisters here describes how a person shouldn't go near the fairy mushrooms, or else the fairies will appear to you. You ever hear about fairy paths? Fairy paths? Oh, fairy paths, yes. Yeah. Mm. That you wouldn't go on the fairy paths, walk on the fairy paths. Yeah. There was, you, you could recognise them, could you? <laughs> Yeah. Well, it was, I suppose, as we were on fairy feet at the time, we used to make them. And the fairy mushrooms. And the fairy the mushrooms. The screw in the tray. Don't can hear that. The fairies will appear to you at night. Be, Years yeah. ago. Would they be poisonous mushrooms? Oh, yes, they would. Oh, yes, yes, poisonous. Yes, poisonous. Yes. Mm. 
This next account from our manuscripts was collected in 1936 in County Wexford by Sean de Butler, and it relates how a man came upon a ring of fairies seated on mushrooms one night. There was a man went out one night in July to pick mushrooms. This man went to a field which he knew was full of mushrooms, and went down to the middle of it. When he got there, he found a ring of fairies, and they were all seated on the mushrooms. He rushed home as fast as he could. When he got up the next morning, he went back to the same field, and he saw the mushrooms there all right, but he was afraid to touch them. Aside from their connection with the fairy host, another account describes how mushrooms could be employed in the creation of sinister love charms. This next entry instructs the reader in the creation of a slightly gruesome charm for coaxing women. It reads, Get ten silk pins, kill a mouse, and stick the pins in his body until they get rusty. When the pins are rusty, get a bolivon bucket, a sort of a mushroom, and stick the pins in it, and leave them there for three days. Pluck the mangling myrach, a herb, and rub the pins to it. Any girl you stick one of these pins in her clothes will follow you all over the world. So much for going to the pub, or a wee walk in the park, or something. The bolivon is recorded elsewhere in our school's collection manuscripts as referring to a white, poisonous fungus, though we have no more specific details in this regard. All was not love charms and fairies, though, as mushrooms were also uh, naturally consumed as part of the diet in Ireland. In correspondence with Wasson, Osuluan notes that, while not a standard dish, it is clear that mushrooms were eaten fairly commonly as a delicacy in rural areas. They would be eaten more in times of famine or shortage of more normal foods. Several references in the accounts refer to the pleasure experienced by those who would pick field mushrooms before returning home and cooking them on the embers of the fire. Mushrooms were often roasted on the edge of the grate, being placed upside down on the embers and handled by the stipe or stalk. To these was added salt and pepper, and the juice that came from them as they roasted is described in several accounts as being a particular delicacy. One account from our manuscripts describes the practice among young boys in the parish of bringing pocketfuls of mushrooms to cook at wakes. It reads... In the months of July, August and September, when the mushrooms would be plenty, there used to be great fun at the wakes. Nearly every lad who was going would have his pocket full of mushrooms. They would all wait then, until about 12 o'clock, when the rosary and the supper would be over, and they would all crowd round the fire. All the women would be gone to bed or gone home, and they would have the place to themselves. There would be a great heap of griasach, grease, after boiling pots all day, and on account of all the timber that is burnt at wakes. They would all then take out their mushrooms and put them down in the griasach after putting salt on top of them. When they would be cooked to their satisfaction, there would be a regular row over the whole affair. They would not know which of them was their own, and they would burn their fingers trying to get them out of the flames. The people of the house would know well enough that they would be at this game, and they would hide the frying pan when they were going to bed. It is said that it destroys a frying pan to put mushrooms on it. Another popular way to prepare mushrooms was by frying them in a pan in sweet milk. The stipes or stalks were generally removed when cooked in this way, and onions were sometimes added to the mix. Several other accounts relate how those who picked enough mushrooms would often prepare a mushroom ketchup, which could be used as a condiment and taken with meals. My thanks to my friend Nina McPhilippine here for highlighting a mushroom ketchup recipe she found in our school's collection manuscripts from County Cork. It reads as follows. Take mushrooms that are quite dry, wipe them and break them into small pieces. Place them in a large basin in layers, sprinkling each with salt. Leave for three days, but stir and mash them often. Now stand in a pan of water on the fire. 
Place in a jar of one and a half ounces of allspice or half an ounce of ginger, a quarter ounce cayenne pepper to each quart of juice. Bring to the boil and continue for one and a half hours. Store in small jars or bottles, adding a few cloves to each. Another school's collection account from County Leitrim describes a similar process. Gather mushrooms and put them in a crock. Put salt on them and they will turn into water. Boil the water with pepper, cloves, cinnamon and spice for a few hours. Mushroom picking and indeed mushroom ketchup serves as the subject for this next song I'd like to play. Recorded by Diane Hamilton on the 7th of November 1956 from the singing of Robert Cinnamond from County Antrim, it describes a romantic rendezvous between the protagonist of the song and the young woman whom he meets as she is out picking mushrooms in the fields one morning. I'd like to send a thanks to Emmett Gill, archivist with Napiabri Illen in Dublin, who pointed me towards the collection in which the song is held, and also to archivist Maeve Brewers at the Irish Traditional Music Archive in Dublin, who very kindly tracked it down for me across a variety of old formats, and also to copyright holder Donald Lunny for permission to play this recording, which I hope you all enjoy. So here is Robert Cinnamon and his rendition of Gathering Mushrooms. Rising early out of bed and across the fields I steer it do When drawing nigh a wall passed by and a pretty fair maid she appeared do Oh her head was bare I do declare she had neither hat nor feather on she stooped so low, gave me to know it was much her room she was gathering no. Oh, was gathering no. She stooped so low, gave me to know it was much her room she was gathering no. Ah, where are ye gone, says I, my dear? Why are you up so early, oh? I seen you o'er the dewy grass before the sower of early, oh. Right and modestly she answered me, and she gave her head a fat chop. And she says, I'm gathered mushrooms for to make my mommy ketchup. Oh, the ketchup, oh. She says, I'm gathered mushrooms for to make my mommy ketchup, oh. Ah, oh, her pantin breast to mine I pressed. Her heart was like a feather, oh. And her lips and mind gently joined, and we both sat down together, oh. Wherever I wander east or west, sure I'll never forget that morning, no. Oh. Or that nice we made. In the grassy shade that mushed rooms was a garden, no. Oh, was garden, no. That nice we made. In the grassy glade that mushed rooms was a garden, no. 
Now, continuity and change is part and parcel of any living tradition, and so I suggest you may also be interested in a recent adaptation of this song, Gathering Mushrooms, which has been arranged by the singing group Landless. Landis are Lily Power, Maeve Meir, Ruth Clinton and Sinead Lynch, and they've recently recorded a fine arrangement of the song, which, seeing as it's yet still unreleased, I'm only going to play you a refraction of uh, to whet your collective appetites, as it were. My thanks to Landis for permission to include this. See a link in the description to hear more of their songs and to support their work. Right, modestly she answered me And she gave her head one fetch up she says, I'm going to make my mummy catch a bow. Oh, catch a bow, catch a bow. She says, I'm going to make my mummy catch a bow. Her panting breast on mine she pressed. Her heart was like a feather roll. Mushrooms were also gathered and sold in the autumn. Mike Silk related to collector Kieran Barry in County Galway how poor people used often to pick them, bring them to Galway and sell them to shopkeepers or anyone who would buy them. He explains, I think two shilling a stone was the price gotten for them. Since people have started driving cars, they started selling them on the roadsides. You'd see children and people standing on the road outside the house with mushrooms on a straw rope, displaying them to passers-by and trying to sell them. This next piece of audio from our sound archive, recorded in 1980 from Mrs. Kerwin in Rathfarnham, County Dublin, further demonstrates this point as she relates how mushrooms used to be sold in the autumn as a supplementary income. And when a blackberry time. My aunt's sons would go out and pick blackberries mm. and bring them and sell them down around Bushy Park, you know, down around Rathjack. Yeah. I mean, that was their only way of survival, you know, yeah. Yeah. for to make a few shillings. Yeah. They'd go out and pick mushrooms and do yeah. likewise with those. Yeah. And bring them off immediately, they pick them? Bring them off immediately and sell them. Like, you know, my aunt had cooked them, mm. what, like, you know, for the family, but what they'd have over, they'd go off and sell them. The sudden overnight appearance of mushrooms was often remarked upon by the people and popular speculation held in places that mushrooms did not grow as such but emerged fully formed from the ground. Another custom recorded in Ireland was the belief that a mushroom wouldn't grow after you'd looked at it. In a letter to Sean O'Sullivan in July 1962, Wasson commented on the widespread distribution of this belief which he had recorded in Hungary, Bohemia, Great Russia and Switzerland. There are in tradition also apocryphal religious narratives concerning the growth and origin of mushrooms which I've come across. In Thompson's Motif Index of Folk Literature is given a Lithuanian motif which relates how mushrooms were created from the spittle of a deity. This idea is found more generally across Europe in a Christian context and is also recorded in Ireland. An Irish language newspaper article published in the Irish press on Friday, August 14th, 1936, relates how mushrooms first came to grow on the earth. Our Lord and St. Peter were walking through the woods one day. They had travelled a long way and had eaten all of their food. St. Peter had a bread crust in his pocket, but he didn't want to take it out in case he angered our Lord, who was relating fantastic stories to him, on which he was unable to focus on account of his hunger. In the end, his hunger overcame him, and he secretly began to eat the crusts. Every time Peter's mouth was full, our Lord would speak to him, and so he had to spit out the bread. 
In this way, all the bread was wasted without any of it being eaten. Something amazing happened. Everywhere the bread had landed, a growth had appeared. They were good food, and the people called them mushrooms. It happened that the devil was watching them and saw this wonder. Any fool can do that, he said, but I'll make much lovelier mushrooms. He got a loaf of bread and copied what St. Peter had done. Mushrooms very like Peter's grew up, but alas, everyone who ate them died, as the devil's mushrooms were poisonous. A version of this narrative is also to be found in our school's manuscript collection, along with several versions of a popular riddle regarding the appearance of lone mushroom in the field. A version of this riddle from County Louth goes thus. On yonder hill there stands a deer, seldom seen but once a year, neither flesh nor feather nor bone. On yonder hill it stands alone. The answer, you guessed it. But what then of any passing reference in the folklore collection to the use of psychedelic or psilocybin-containing mushrooms in Irish tradition? Well, there are precisely none whatsoever at all. The only reference I can find to anything even resembling a description of psilocybe semilanciata in the collection is entirely vague. In a glossary from Croome, County Limerick, Irish language words used in the area are listed. Among them, Pukapiles and pukapines, the fairy mushrooms, i.e. the mushroom with the tall, thin, conical cap and long stem, generally a late autumn growth. No further information is provided, though in other descriptions the pukapile is regarded as an inedible mushroom and disliked by the people. Given the general taboo and nervousness surrounding mushrooms in Irish tradition, from where does the contemporary use of psilocybin mushrooms in Ireland stem? To answer this question, we have to return to the Wassons. In the course of their deepening research, Orgordon Wasson and his wife Tina came to learn of the survival of the use of intoxicating mushrooms among the indigenous peoples of Mexico. This discovery led them to organise yearly research expeditions to the remote mountain villages of the Mazatec people of Oaxaca, southern Mexico, and on the night of June 29th, 1955, Orgordon Wasson and his friend Alan Richardson were the first Westerners to take part in the Holy Communion of the Velada, the midnight rites of the cult of the sacred mushroom, under the guidance of Mazatec healer and shaman Maria Sabina. Wasson detailed the ceremonies in which he partook with Sabina in a photo essay which was read by millions, titled Seeking the Magic Mushroom, published in Life magazine in 1957, and in the years that followed there resulted an enormous rush of American hippies and beatniks, etc., to the mountainous regions of Oaxaca in search of the mushroom. While initially hospitable to the first of these arrivals, their lack of respect for the sacred and traditional purposes became a great source of distress for Sabina and for the Mazatec community at large. Hippies and beatniks, though, weren't the only ones interested in psilocybin mushrooms, and word of Wasson's discovery had quickly reached the US Central Intelligence Agency. Dr. James Moore, a University of Delaware chemist secretly in the pay of the CIA, was instructed to get close to Wasson and to accompany him on another trip to Mexico and to return with the magic mushroom. Internal documents show that the CIA felt a drug derived from the mushroom could remain a secret compound for the agency to use as part of their operations. The CIA plan was subverted, however, as Wasson had sent samples of the mushrooms to the Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman, who had developed LSD in 1938, and Hoffman had worked quickly to publish the structure of psilocybin, the compound present in the Mexican sacred mushrooms. In England, the British Mycological Society published a paper in 1969 showing that psilocybe semilanciata, commonly known as the Liberty Cap, contained the same compound as the sacred mushrooms Wasson had encountered in Mexico. 
Newspaper accounts concerning the use of psychedelic mushrooms don't appear in Ireland until the 1970s, and given a consideration of the broad array of sources at our disposal, I think it's fair to surmise that contemporary use of psychedelic mushrooms in Irish culture is not representative of any long-standing, formalised, archaic tradition or cult, but, stranger still, can be traced directly to the impact of Wasson's meeting with healer and shaman Maria Sabina in 1955, and to the enormous impact that their meeting had in introducing psilocybin to the Western world. This, therefore, is a very new frontier indeed. Some of those at the forefront of this frontier are the researchers, practitioners, scholars and participants currently undertaking randomised control trials in which the efficacy of psilocybin in the treatment of severe depression and anxiety is being assessed. In Ireland, Dr John Kelly of the Department of Psychiatry, Trinity College Dublin and Tala Hospital is leading a team of researchers conducting a randomised double-blind trial investigating the efficacy of psilocybin in treatment-resistant depression. A 2019 paper by Kelly and five other authors, Baker, Babaker, Burke, Brennan and O'Kane, while warning of the dangers of psychedelics taken in unsupported environments, outlines the potential therapeutic benefits of psilocybin treatment in reducing anxiety, improving mood, improving optimism, imbuing a sense of meaning, increasing spiritual significance and, and adding to a greater feeling of interconnectivity with the environment and with others. So, will the next 10 or so years see the decriminalization of psilocybin and its emergence as an accepted therapeutic intervention for depressive disorders? It remains to be seen. I wish Dr. Kelly and his colleagues the very best of luck in all of their work. So, to conclude, mushrooms have been here all along as silent witnesses on the perimeters. Existing on the margins and populating the undergrowth, they have gone unnoticed as peripheral details bearing an eerie grace, a mystery at the edge of the frame, now opening a door onto centre stage in the play of human consciousness and imagination, a living landscape from which there is much to learn. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Blurini. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care. Slán.